This episode of The Politics of Everything originally aired on March 9th, 2022. New at nine, a woman has died. Five others were terribly hurt after a car crash in Queens this morning. Four people, including three children, have been hurt in a crash on the south side. Three people have died in a wreck in DeKalb County that completely mangled their car. Breaking news to get to our chopper over this deadly crash in West Phoenix. You can see that red car. Uh, right there is smashed through the corner of a wall. If you have been driving less since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, you are not alone. In 2020, American auto traffic was down 20 percent, according to a recent study by AAA. That significant reduction in driving, however, has had an odd side effect. It made an already dangerous activity even deadlier. The National Safety Council estimated that 2020 saw the biggest single-year spike in traffic deaths in a century. 38,680 people died on the roads in 2020. 2021 was somehow even worse. Journalists have sought to explain this by turning to cognitive scientists for neurological answers and blaming drugs and alcohol. The pandemic is said to have made us more reckless, more anxious, and more stressed, making bad decisions behind the wheel. But can pandemic stress explain why other countries haven't seen the same skyrocketing numbers of traffic fatalities? Can it explain why pedestrian deaths in the U.S. have been steadily rising for more than a decade, even as they've declined in peer countries? Is the problem our feelings, or is it the streets themselves? I'm Laura Marsh. I'm Alex Perrine. This is the politics of everything. When the pandemic started, one thing that happened very quickly that I think most experts would have predicted would happen was that traffic fell. There was less driving going on. Charles Marone is the author of Confessions of a Recovering Engineer and the founder of Strong Towns, an organization devoted to building more resilient communities. Thank you for joining us today, Chuck. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Another thing I think experts would have predicted was that with less traffic, there would be fewer crashes and fewer traffic fatalities. That's not what happened. And it's left people who deal with traffic safety kind of scratching their heads. The entire uh, basis of our traffic safety system is predicated on buffers and armor and padding. The, The idea behind having lots of padding and lots of armor is to protect us from driver mistakes. You put airbags in, you put seatbelts on, you make lanes wider, you give lots of room for people. So when there's less traffic, in theory, there's more room to move and things should be safer for everybody. So, you know, the idea that there would be more crashes with fewer people driving is just anathema to the whole kind of system as it's theoretically set up. And so the people who look at this theory and look at the fact that crashes were going up and deaths were going up had to come up with an explanation. So what explanations did people reach for to explain why crashes would go up with less traffic? (laughs) The only kind of tool they have in their arsenal is that it's human error. The humans must be broken in some way that they weren't broken before the pandemic started. You recently wrote about this and you described some pieces from the New York Times and from CNN and some of the terms they use. They're they're blaming the surge in pedestrian deaths and the surge in traffic deaths on social disengagement and arousal breakout. (laughs) 
Basically, they're making it psychological, uh, as yeah. you just described. But before we get into your theory, it should be pointed out the entire world experienced the COVID-19 pandemic. Did the entire world have arousal, breakout, and social disengagement lead to greater pedestrian deaths and traffic fatalities? No, this is a pathology exclusive to Americans, if you follow this logic. Because what we saw in European countries is that as driving went down, crashes went down. As driving went down, fatalities went down. There was not the correlation. And just, by the way, those places have lower rates of death per mile traveled than we do anyway. We have very dangerous roadways. We have very dangerous streets. European countries have lower rates of of crashes and lower rates of fatality than we do. So what is it that makes American streets particularly dangerous? To me, it's very simple. Our roadways are designed based on the precepts that we developed and gave to engineers at the end of World War II, which is all around mobility. If we can move a high volume of traffic at a high rate of speed, we can have increased mobility. And increased mobility, particularly in the post-war era, like the couple decades right after World War II, was tied to things like economic growth. The more places you can drive, the more jobs you can attain, the more products can be consumed. When you focus on speed and volume, what you do in order to attain that from an engineering standpoint is you create buffers. You get higher speeds by widening out lanes. You get higher speeds by adding shoulders to the sides of roads, by removing uh, things from the edge of the roadway that would create visual friction and actually like slow things down. You basically create a highway. And in America, we took the knowledge that we had gained in building safe highways And we applied that to our local streets. Well, in a local street, you don't have the simplicity that you have on a highway. You will have cars that randomly switch lanes, that turn in and out of traffic, that pull out of driveways. That's just the cars. You also have people walking. You have people in wheelchairs. You have kids that chase the soccer ball. The challenge with our streets is that when you combine speeds that are above 20 miles an hour with kind of random complexity, you get a high degree of of collisions and a high degree of traumatic injury and death. So the existing state of U.S. streets was already very dangerous prior to the pandemic. But then we took a bunch of cars off the road and they somehow got worse. And you have a theory as to why. Prior to the pandemic, the one ubiquitous condition that we experienced across North America is high levels of traffic congestion. Mm. And what congestion does from a traffic standpoint is it slows everything down. Mm -hmm. It calms traffic. Mm. You can't drive fast because there's someone in front of you. And because you're limited to how fast you can drive, all of that over-engineering and all that over-design to get you someplace quickly goes away. Well, now get to March of 2020 and remove the congestion and what happens? The only people on the road now are driving with a, a, a relatively low volume of traffic compared to what was prior, but a high volume of traffic compared to what you would see during non-rush hour. They're essentially driving in the most dangerous conditions, which is a medium volume of traffic at high speeds with lots of complexity added in. You're saying we've designed non-highway roads like highways to get cars as efficiently through as possible. Back when everyone was commuting, there was so much traffic you couldn't help but drive slowly. And what the pandemic did is that it made people drive at all times of day instead of just at morning and evening rush. And they were now driving on less congested streets 
that are designed like highways, but that have a lot of complexity and randomness of city and town life in them. That's exactly it. And I think it's important to recognize that for years and years and years, our fatality rate has been coming down. And engineers and safety officials have pointed to things like airbags and seatbelts and, you know, safety, you know, quote unquote, improvements that they've made to widen out lanes and create more space and more buffer room as the, the reason for that. But it also correlates with an increased amount of congestion because mm. during the same period of time when crashes have been going down, congestion has been climbing grotesquely. It, it's gotten to be this epidemic in cities where you would have eight hours of level of service F is what traffic engineers would call it, where traffic is almost at a standstill. So this gets back to that red herring about people driving recklessly because they're angry. Because when you have a lot of congestion, people actually are angry, but they don't have the ability <laughs> to drive recklessly <laughs> because they can't really move. Whereas when you're quite happily zipping along, that's when you may be at the highest likelihood of causing a really bad crash. Yes. Congestion is like frustrating, right? But there's no outlet for it. And that's why mm -hmm. it becomes very frustrating. One of the things that's been reported is that a lot of these crashes are people who have been, you know, smoking marijuana or drinking. And the reality is, is that those people exist in the traffic stream now today. They just can't go very fast. There's a yeah. limit to like the mayhem they can create in a system that is really over-congested. But remove that congestion, give them lots of buffer room, lots of room to move, and yeah, they're going to wreak havoc on the system. Well, something I wanted to ask you about is the design of roads, particularly in towns, which you've talked about a lot and worked on a lot. Can you just describe for us like, what does a very unpleasant, very dangerous thoroughfare look like? What would be the features of an unsafe street? The most dangerous street out there is something that we at Strong Towns call a strode. It's the street road hybrid. Uh, we call this the futon of transportation because it, it tries to do two things simultaneously and does neither well. It tries to, <laughs> to both move cars quickly through a place and also provide a platform for building wealth and building stuff within a place. So imagine a four-lane roadway with like a center turn lane down the middle. Mm -hmm. Traffic lights every quarter mile, every three, four blocks, with strip malls and drive-through restaurants along the side, wide lanes, fast-moving traffic, shoulders. This is the quintessential death environment in the U.S. Because when you get up to 40, 45, 50 miles an hour, people are going to die. You can run tens of thousands of people through an environment like that, and there'll be no crashes. But statistically do that day after day after day after day, and someone is going to randomly do something that traffic analysis people can call a mistake. Mm -hmm. You and I can just call being human. Mm -hmm. Someone is going to do something in that space very human. And the fact that the space itself is designed in a really dangerous way is going to create this trauma and this injury. When you are talking about street design and safety in the U.S., you hear an argument a lot, I think, from engineer types that speed is safe. They will say things like the safest roads are highways. That's correct, right? Like that's, yeah. that's because highways don't have those features you're talking about. So, of course, <laughs> they're designed for speed and speed is safe there. But when we introduce highway design to other kinds of places, that's where we get in trouble. That, that's exactly it. Highways are some of the safest 
transportation space we have in the world. Most of our deaths in this country do not occur on highways. They occur on these kind of mid places that aren't really streets, but they're not the fast highways where we've gotten rid of the complexity. They're that in-between space. They're, they're deadly. They're really, really dangerous. I hope you stay warm in Brainerd, Chuck, and thank you so much for talking to us. Hey, thanks for having me. It's spring, so it's warming up here, and we're all happy and in good spirits. <laughs> Glad to hear it. We've been talking about the design of American streets, but what about what drives on those streets? After a short break, we're going to talk about cars. So we talked to Charles Marone about how American streets are designed inherently dangerously. He has his argument for why traffic deaths and auto accidents have risen since the pandemic started. AAA has another take. They had a study out recently. It's been reported about in the Washington Post and elsewhere. They say dangerous driving is up because there are more dangerous drivers driving more. We're joined now by Jesse Singer, who is the author of the new book, There Are No Accidents. Jesse, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. What What is AAA's role in this debate? Why do they want to pin this on individual choices made by drivers? AAA is simply the lobbying arm of the automobile industry. Their mm. interests are the same as Ford's or Dodge's. And you could see why Ford or Dodge or AAA would have quite a bit of interest in psychoanalyzing drivers, because it's a wholly unactionable way of looking at the problem. It makes the problem of traffic fatalities about human error, the nut behind the wheel, the reckless, angry driver. And so there's no systemic change to be made. The system is fine in this narrative. People are the problem. Right. There's not a thing we can do to change that besides like a law saying safe people must drive more or something like silly like that. And, and I get it. This narrative comforts everyone because it gives us a straw man, the angry driver to blame. But the narrative also benefits AAA. It benefits Ford. It benefits Dodge because if traffic crashes are a problem of angry drivers, then there's nothing to be done than what we're already doing, which is spend too much money on police enforcement. So take us through that, because there are two pieces here. One is people who are in cars crashing into other cars, and one is people who are walking around getting hit by cars. Why is it becoming more dangerous to be a person just walking around? The reason it's becoming more dangerous to be a person walking around is because our cars for the past 20 years have been getting larger and more powerful uh, under a pattern of almost no regulation from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. There's also been a significant lack of concern for pedestrians, which is one reason why in other wealthy countries, pedestrian fatalities are declining. And in the U.S., they're skyrocketing because we don't measure or test the safety of our vehicles for whether or not the impact is survivable for a person outside of them. Right. When you think about those those videos of cars being tested, you see the crash dummies in the driver's seat or the passenger seat, but there isn't a pedestrian dummy at the simplest level, right? At the simplest level, we're not even testing for it. Another thing that happened is that we are buying more SUVs and light trucks. So the share of vehicles on the road that are large, there's a higher saturation of these mega vehicles, which again, are totally unregulated and they keep getting bigger. What accounts for that lack of regulation? Because cars are regulated in their design in some aspects. Cars have to have seatbelts. They have to have other certain safety features. Why isn't size considered 
a safety feature that needs to be regulated like anything else. I would argue in the U.S. that our vehicles are sort of, kind of regulated sometimes. <laughs> Deregulation and the defanging of our regulatory agencies since the Reagan administration has taken a massive toll. There's something like, I think the number was 40 cars that have been recalled in Europe and the exact same models are still allowed to drive on U.S. roads because they have not recalled those cars in the U.S. Wow, so there's a direct point of comparison there. There's an interesting irony here, because we've been talking about regulation and safety, and people are buying larger and larger cars, in part because they're being heavily, heavily marketed, but also because of the perception of safety. That's kind of the irony here. In purchasing these cars because of the perception that the massive tank size SUV is the safest way to get around, you are externalizing the danger, basically. Yeah, it's like buying a gun. You're arming up for the war on the road, and it's killing people. I, I think that's absolutely true. When they market cars for safety, they're talking solely about the safety of the person inside the vehicle. Yep, you versus everyone else. And I think it's important to point out that like incoming inequality, which is rising, plays a big part here because cars on the road today are older than they were two decades ago because people have less discretionary income to spend on a car. I don't think people know if you ever sat in a car that's 30 years old versus a, a car now, you'll see, you can just see much less of the road around you directly through the window. Absolutely. And this has led to a rise in these extraordinarily horrible child pedestrian deaths. Pedestrian feels like the wrong word. Front over crashes, they're being called, where someone runs over their own child in their own driveway. Mm -hmm. Because they can't see, you know, 10, 15 feet in front of the hood. And another thing that's going on there is that as the vehicle gets bigger, it needs a bigger engine to power that more weight. And so that's making the front of the vehicle much larger. And that's another reason fuel economy is much more strictly regulated in Europe. And so in Europe, the vehicles are smaller because they're more fuel efficient, because they have less powerful engines by a concern for climate change that also benefits pedestrians and also benefits other people in older, less safe cars. There was this video that went viral recently of someone in one of these cars and actually has a dash. It has like a camera that you're meant to look in. You know, there's like a camera you can look at when you're reversing sometimes. And that seems like actually a great feature for parking. But this is a camera that shows you what's in front of your car that you can't see through the window. And it seems like that kind of feature would just be a huge red flag to a driver, like that you should need to keep toggling down in, to look at the screen in order to like not hit something. In order or to know what's in front another, of your car. <laughs> a car in front of you. Like how have car companies managed to market these cars to drivers without revealing how much they limit your ability to see where you're going? I think that people trust our regulatory agencies to do their job. And, and like these vehicles we're talking about have great safety ratings. But of course, the safety ratings aren't considering people outside the car at all. Right, right. And you, these SUVs kind of look good. And they also look safe in that they're sort of fortress-like. If you get into one, you feel like you're up high and you're protected. But that's only one piece. And of course, the consequences if you hit someone and you're responsible for their death for the rest of your life are severe. The safest way to drive through a city would be in a tank. You would just be a danger to everyone outside <laughs> the tank. <laughs> so we have a problem, regardless of its causes, we have a problem of more traffic fatalities rising in the U.S. 
can we police our way out of it? Is the solution more traffic stops? Is it to get all the bad drivers off the road to give them more tickets? Is that how we do it? More police is never the solution as much as we like to throw police at problems in this country. But with traffic enforcement, we have very clear and direct evidence. A recent study looked at 12 years of traffic stops in 33 states, a massive realm of police enforcement data. And they could find zero correlation between traffic fatalities and traffic stops. None. I've always thought that you can tell what policing traffic for the police department is really about by the existence of the speed trap. If you were designing for safety, you'd have like great big blinking signs that say, there's a cop around the corner monitoring your speed, and then everyone would slow down. Instead, we just wait for them to speed so we can give them the ticket to get the revenue. How useful are speed cameras, though? Because if you have a very, very long, very wide road that you can bomb down at 100 miles an hour... And then there's a speed camera. Does that really make people safer? Because it's not like the whole road is monitored. And you see people speed all the way up to the speed camera and then slam on the brakes and kind of slowly go through the zone where there's a camera. I'm curious, Jesse, if you know how effective those cameras are or if they're just kind of a Band-Aid. Can they be both effective and a (laughs) Band-Aid? Yeah, totally. (laughs) Absolutely. Things can be two things on this show. In New York City, we have a very, very large automated speed enforcement program. And New York City, size-wise, is a small city. So the whole city is really well covered in speed cameras. We've seen significant declines in deaths and injuries and crashes, and also a significant decline in recidivism, where most people don't get a second or a third ticket from these Mm -hmm. cameras. It's a $50 ticket, no points on your license. And so what that is, is a guaranteed low-level consequence. And psychologically, that's something we respond to. And, And this is why police enforcement doesn't work, because getting caught by a cop is pretty random. You can speed five days in a row and get caught one. And what that tells you is that on that one day, you were unlucky, Mm -hmm. which makes it more likely that you're going to test it the next day and see if you could be lucky the next day. So it's not the level of punishment that matters. It's the guaranteed of the consequence. That said, I I do think automated enforcement um, can be a Band-Aid and can be used in bad ways. And we've seen this in like Chicago, where the camera program selectively targeted the most dangerous streets, but because of decades-old racist planning uh, processes, the most dangerous streets were in Black neighborhoods. I would like to see a policy where if a, a municipality doesn't see a decline in speed camera tickets at an individual location over time, that municipality is fined for not redesigning the road to make drivers slow down. Mm. It sounds like what you're also suggesting is that tickets should have two functions. One is to deter the person who gets the ticket from doing this again. But the other is that they should also be a reflection upon the area that's handing out all the tickets. Automated enforcement should absolutely be a reflection of government. And to be honest, one reason I don't love automated enforcement is it makes the problem about us instead of the system that should be keeping us safe. I mean, New York City could eliminate traffic fatalities in a year if it took the police budget and redesigned every road in the city. People make bad decisions because of the conditions they're exposed to at the time. And there's almost always a way to protect them. Jesse Singer, author of There Are No Accidents, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you for having me. So we've talked about some of the reasons why there are so many car crashes in the United States and why those problems are getting worse. But there are places in the world where traffic deaths are much less of a problem. And after the break, we're going to talk to someone who lives in one of those places.
Would you like to hear more from TNR? Every day, our writers and editors work to bring you the reporting and analysis you need to make sense of the world. But we can't do it without you. Please consider subscribing to The New Republic with our special offer at tnr.com slash specialoffer. That's tnr.com slash specialoffer. We've pretty extensively covered what's wrong with American streets and American vehicles. Other countries do things very differently, and we're talking now to someone who lives in one of those countries. Jason Slaughter's YouTube channel, Not Just Bikes, is about planning and urban design. He lives in the Netherlands. Jason, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Is it safer to cross the street in Amsterdam, where you live, and why is that? Yes, it is absolutely safer to cross the street here in Amsterdam and really anywhere in the Netherlands than it is in North America, in in Canada or the U.S. And the reason for that comes down to the fact that the road design here, the street design, is fundamentally safer. What do the streets look like there? Like, Describe to me what a safe street looks like and how you can kind of move around on it. Well, here in the Netherlands, streets are very narrow. They're very typically only one lane in each direction. Then it will branch out into turning lanes where appropriate. This allows, first of all, so many things. You stay in your lane. You're not moving back and forth. You're not like jockeying for position with other people. You're drivers. not jockeying for position either. But one of the other big things here is this idea that there's a road and there's a street and there is not this mixed up thing in between that you see all over North America, the strode. So for example, here there will be a road and a road will be usually one lane in each direction. It will go from one place to another place with nothing in between. There will be no driveways to shops. Mm -hmm. There will be no driveways to homes. There will be no side streets or as few as possible. And what you get is you get this very constrained environment. All you have to do is go down your lane. You're not mixing with cyclists. You're not mixing with pedestrians. They're off to the side or even on a totally different route altogether. And then when you get into the city, you'll get to traffic lights and you'll be brought into a more street environment. But then the lanes get even more narrow. Sometimes they'll remove the center line to just because this is the kind of thing that you, you want. The philosophy here is you want a driver to almost feel a little bit nervous. You want to force him to pay attention. Yeah, you force them to pay attention. And, and this is a psychological thing. This is something that just happens when you're driving. You don't even notice it. You'll be driving along. And the, and the road will narrow visually. There'll be lines that get smaller, but also the sides of the road will come in. There's parked cars. There will be no more parked cars by the crossing. And there will usually be some sort of speed humps. Sometimes the entire crossing itself will be raised up to sidewalk level so that you have to cross over it. Or there will be a, a speed bump before it so that it forces you to slow down before a crossing. So that's the driver sees the road narrowing. What does it look like for me if I'm walking alongside the road? Now, from a pedestrian's point of view, you walk from the sidewalk, the curb extends a bit out into the road to make it narrower. You cross at the level of the sidewalk in many cases across a marked crossing. You only need to cross one lane of traffic at a time looking in one direction at a time. Then you have this island in the center where you can stop and wait to make sure that, that the drivers are stopping from the other direction. And it's the easiest thing to do. There's no complicated crosswalks, right? multi-lanes. Yeah, it's exactly. It's really hard to screw it up. And I think like crossing the street is one of these things that every time I go back to Canada or if I go to the U.S., after being here in the Netherlands, I'm like, this is insane. <laughs> like the way that you do it there. It is absolutely 
totally insane. It's funny. It's funny when you just uh, described because this idea of you cross one lane and then you have this island you can <laughs> stop at if the light changes or something happens, you need a, your shoelace is untied, right? And then you can cross the next lane you're right. across. Whereas in the US, you can have these six lane crossings and they have like a timer telling you like with the numbers yeah. ticking down yeah and then got eight if you're not across by it. if you're not across by the end of this like you're doomed <laughs> so i mean the the crossing i was talking about is the one that wouldn't have a signal it would just be like literally a road crossing but let's talk about like signals because traffic signals here in the netherlands are so much smarter than they are oh, in I love North this. America. This is a great and, topic. <laughs> yeah, like I, I don't, I don't even know where to start with this on a podcast. But let's just talk about it with with respect to pedestrians trying to cross the road. Like one of the big things that they do here is they will very often completely stop traffic in all directions when the pedestrian light is on. So you come up to the light, the light turns green. This is not the case at every intersection, but major intersections they'll have this where. First of all, we don't have right turn on red here because that is insane. Mm -hmm. Like, I think I, I did a video about this uh, and the, the statistics that were done with, they did three different cities in um, in the U.S. And I think it was a 69% higher chance of pedestrian injury right when you have red. right turn on red. I mean, it's, it's insane. So you said traffic signals in the Netherlands are so much smarter. What makes them smarter? I, I was just out today in a very suburban area at a, at a meeting, and I was watching this traffic light, and I'm just blown away by it because the way that it operates is that a bus is coming. Buses, trams almost always get priority in the Netherlands. I mean, this is, again, mm. how it is faster to take the bus than signal it is priority, to drive. Signal priority, meaning, like, meaning signal the bus, priority, the bus right? gets green lights. Yeah. Right. And the bus gets a green light and never even needs to slow down because that system knows that bus is coming like many seconds before it arrives at the intersection. It'll turn everything red for everybody. It'll turn it green for that bus or that tram. That tram goes flying through the intersection and then immediately as soon as it's done, the traffic signal goes back to what it's doing. But it will do things like, for instance, you'll come up to the traffic signal with your car. You'll be in a small platoon of cars. The system will turn green for you right before you get to the intersection in many cases. And then if you're watching cars go through, as soon as the last car crosses the stop line, it immediately turns red. Because it knows there's no more cars coming. And, and this is also like this efficiency thing, but it's also a safety thing. So if you're coming up to an intersection on a bicycle, it can see that there's no car coming. It knows, the system knows within the next couple seconds, there's no car coming. It will turn the light red for those cars uh, for in that direction. It will turn it green for you as a cyclist. You go through, it immediately turns it red for you and then goes green again for, the, for that direction of the cars. So not only is it more efficient, it's also safer because it's stopping all those points of conflict. So obviously it's always been this way because the Netherlands is more enlightened than us and they love their cars less and they love driving less and, and the U.S. just culturally, culturally can't change. That's sort of the American take. Has the Netherlands always been like this, though? The streets in the Netherlands were pretty much the same as they were in the U.S. and Canada into about the 1970s. There were a lot of people being killed on the streets in the 70s, as there were in the U.S. and Canada. And this kind of culminated here in the Netherlands with the movement called Stop the Kindermord, which literally means stop killing children. Mm -hmm. And with the Stop the Kindermord uh, movement, a lot of people were protesting the fact that kids were being killed in the streets. And then this happened to coincide with the oil crisis and 
quite frankly, they just got a little bit lucky with the right people in government at the right time. But what that resulted in is a fundamental change in the way they looked at their uh, road safety. So that kicked off in the late 70s, a program that was eventually became known as sustainable safety. And the idea that the responsibility of making the street safe is down to the street design itself. And for what it's worth, Sweden found a very similar thing at around the same time with their Vision Zero. Mm -hmm. They found that you can't make the streets safe by wishing that they'll be safer, by telling everybody if, if they just followed the rules, we'd all be fine, you know. Um, right, just none like of telling people, like, be safe out there. Yeah, be safe out there, watch everybody. <laughs> PSA, just, right? Yeah, like exactly. on the, yeah, yeah. The educational uh, solution to it, which you hear constantly in North America, the personal responsibility, the, you know, if everyone just looked out for everyone else, if we we're all just considerate road users, but this is nonsense for so many reasons. Everybody will make mistakes at some point in time. And so the philosophy here became, we're going to acknowledge that we're humans. And so what we're going to do is we're going to make it such that the infrastructure allows mistakes to happen without those mistakes being fatal. So that is the fundamental philosophy that was taken here. And this was made into a uh, countrywide federal rules on how the streets are designed. So there was a turning point in the Netherlands where they saw the problem and they decided they were going to try to do things differently. Here in the US, did we ever even try? Now, the US kind of did the same thing. In the 1960s, they said things like, mistakes are inevitable for drivers. Like in the 1960s, there were a lot of cases, for example, where the lanes were quite narrow and cars might bump into each other. And so one of the things that was done in the US was to say, well, we're going to make the, the streets wider. The problem with the U.S. is that they took that philosophy of we'll allow people to not make mistakes, like, for instance, let them run off the road and not hit a tree. But they was only ever done for drivers. It was never done to let pedestrians make mistakes, to let cyclists make mistakes. I mean, if you are in a painted line bike lane, what I like to call a painted bicycle gutter along the side of a road that's 60 kilometers an hour traffic next to you, there's no room for mistake there right? Like you turn your bike the wrong way and you're dead. Our listeners who love their cars and love driving might be thinking we're zealots. And at least in my case, they're right. I am a zealot. But what you are also describing is a system that is, as you point out in one of your videos, actually better for oh, drivers. It's so actually much better. If you want to drive places, this makes the entire process better, doesn't it? The thing that's so great about driving in the Netherlands is that well, first of all, it's so much more calm. There's not the mm -hmm. insanity of all the cars around and the road rage and everything else that you get in North America. But also, there's so much less traffic. And that is because no matter what people in North America will tell you, that, you know, you just make the road bigger and bigger and bigger and traffic will get better. Look, if that was true, then Houston would have no traffic. But <laughs> the truth of the matter is, the only solution to car traffic is viable alternatives to driving. That's mm -hmm. it. There is no other solution to car traffic, period. So the thing here in the Netherlands is that there are viable alternatives to driving. They make it very easy and safe to walk. They make it very easy and safe to uh, cycle. And to live in a place where you have to drive to do everything. You have to drive to go to work. You have to drive to feed yourself and your family. That sucks. It really yeah. genuinely does. And one of the things that people tell me all the time is they want the freedom to drive. Well, I'll tell you, the real freedom is the freedom to not to have to drive. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, everyone check out Not Just Bikes. It's a great channel. Thank you so much for having me. 
The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Keenan Kush did the audio editing for this episode. If you enjoy the show and you want to help support it, one thing you can do is rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. Every review helps. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.